0: You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be in verses 1 through 6. Jenna just read for us. If you're new here, my name is Jamin, and I'm one of the pastors. It's so glad I'm so glad that you chose to worship with us this morning. If you've been with us uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, or really if you've been here for any length of time, one of the uh, truths that, that you see all over Scripture, that you've seen in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, that you see in the New Testament, is is the simple truth that God is the kind of God who cares how His people treat people. And and you could really summarize so much of what Jesus has said in the sermon by, by saying that, that God cares, what Jesus is telling us about life in the kingdom is that God cares how his people treat people. And so you hear that when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers or blessed are the merciful. You hear that when he says, uh, you know, uh, pray for your persecutor, forgive as you've been forgiven. To, To be the people of God is to love all people with a distinct kind of love with a with an otherworldly even confusing kind of love because we are loved by God we are we are loved by God in a way that's unconditional and eternal and otherworldly and so a full understanding of God's love for us is going to come out of our lives as a growing love that we have for others. And so Jesus has, has named what that looks like for us. He's named that it means being a peacemaker. He's named that it means uh, not being angry in your heart towards people. He's named that it means with your eyes and your thoughts honoring people. And he's going to name another one that's that's actually really familiar language. He's going to uh, use language that is familiar to all of us because of the culture that we live in. And this is, this is um, the same language of what is a really common cultural creed, if you will. He says, don't judge people. Judge not lest you be judged. Because of how familiar that concept is, like you might have even heard that. You shouldn't judge people. You might have heard that this week from someone other than Jesus. You might have encountered that in media or in a story or in the news or even just in conversation with someone. And and, uh, a lot of people know that this verse exists in the Bible. And because it's familiar, um, there's a chance that it's uh, even more misunderstood and even more confused. So just I want to lay three simple questions over this passage that we're going to answer this morning. As we read Matthew 7, 1 through 6, we're going to answer the following three questions what this verse doesn't mean, what it does mean, and how we should respond. Very simple what it doesn't mean, what it does mean, and how we should respond. 7, 1 Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So we'll start with what this doesn't mean. And, and maybe we have more work to do around this question than, than any of the others, because uh, this idea of not judging people has has made it into part of our cultural conversation. It's made it into, uh, it's been infused with meaning in a lot of ways that I don't actually think Jesus meant. I don't have any data for this. This is just anecdotal. Uh, and if you can think of another verse, then, then let me know after church. Don't shout it out. That'd be awkward, mostly for you. But I think this verse, I think this verse might be the most well-known verse among people who aren't Christians. Tons of people maybe that know very little about the Bible, maybe know very little about Christianity or Christian teaching, but they know that somewhere in this book it says don't judge people. One of the most important parts of understanding scripture, uh, one of the most important things to keep in mind as you read God's word is that we are to read scripture in context we are to we understand God's words based on the words that surround those words. You this is true in your life. You want people when you're talking to them, you want them to understand what you're saying in the context in which you're saying it, in the words that you're speaking it, the relationship that you guys have together, right? Well, the same is true for scripture. To understand any one verse, to understand any one command, to understand especially the parts of it that 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 are that are can be confusing you have to look at the surrounding verses. You have to look at the surrounding chapters. You have to look at the book that that verse is in. And even you have to look at the entire uh, scope of God's word. And all of that weighs in on and informs the meeting. And so out of context, what this verse has come to mean for some, out of context, it's come to mean that no one, what don't judge me means is no one can ever confront me over sin in my life. No one can call me out about wrong in my life. No one can tell another person how they should or should not live, right? What they should or should not do. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. No one judge me means I am the only one who can assess my own life. I'm the only one who can assess right in my life or wrong in my life or what's best in my life. And if anyone else tries to weigh in on that, especially if they're saying things I don't wanna hear, they're judging me which that's a confusing claim, if you just think about this with me, because to even say that someone is judging me is to call out perceived wrong in their life, which is what I just said they can't do to me, right? Like, to say to someone, don't judge me, is to make a judgment about them. Uh, You judge them in telling them not to judge. Is this what Jesus means? One commentator said it this way, and I found this language really helpful. I want to take from from his commentary, his name is Scott McKnight. And he said, Jesus is not forbidding. The way that we uh, make sure to understand what he means and what he doesn't mean is to see that Jesus is not forbidding moral discernment. That's not what he's talking about. Moral discernment is when we say from God's word. We look at God's word, and we say, this is what's right, and this is what's wrong. And we apply God's word. We apply uh, God's morals to the world around us, and we even exercise moral discernment in the lives of the people around us. And you see that actually encouraged in this context. You see that in the surrounding verses. Jesus is going to instruct us to be this way in the lives of the people around us. So he says in in the verse three through five, he's going to talk about logs and specs. We'll unpack that in a little bit. But in verse five, he describes us, one of the roles that we play in one another's lives is helping others see what's in their eye. Helping others see, it's lovingly, gently helping others see sin and wrong in their life. And so he's actually saying, this is something that you should be doing. In verse six, Jesus calls someone a dog and someone else a pig. That that feels pretty judgy. I don't know. That, That seems like There's something he's saying there that's going to be really hard for someone else to hear. There's a ton of thoughts about what it means some people think Jesus is saying that there are people who aren't ready to understand certain spiritual truths, maybe people who aren't ready to understand the ethics of the kingdom until they have a heart change. And so maybe uh, what Jesus is saying is you shouldn't expect non-believers to live like believers, that's possible. Some say Jesus is identifying uh, a certain kind of person who's obstinate and toxic and oppressive, and and, uh, you shouldn't try and talk to them about their sin because they don't have ears to hear. Maybe it's similar to Proverbs 9, it talks about not rebuking a fool in their fall, and maybe that's what Jesus is saying. Either way, whatever it means, he's expecting the people that he's talking to, he's expecting us as his disciples uh, to make judgment calls about others, to see things in people's lives and to speak honestly about those things. In just a few verses, Jesus is gonna say, beware of false prophets. And if you were to say, Jesus, how do I know a false prophet's a false prophet? He said, well, a tree is known by its fruit. And so what he's saying is look at their life, make judgments about the sincerity of their belief based on how they live, exercise moral discernment. In Matthew 18, Jesus lays out a process by which people in the same community, he lays out a process by which people in the same faith community are to confront one another in our sin. And he doesn't call that judging. It's an act of faithful, gracious pursuit. Okay, if all that's true in context, if you just reach for the verses right around the verse, judge not. Here's what it can't mean. Don't judge does not mean you never say to someone else what is right and what is wrong. Don't judge can't mean that Christians shrink back from their prophetic vocation in the world of speaking clearly about what is good for the world, what is bad for the world, what is good for humans and what is bad for humans. Don't judge does not mean you never confront someone in their sin. Don't judge does not mean you never say hard things to people. Obviously, if we're trying to capture the gentle heart of Jesus, there's a posture by which we'll do all that. But here's... here's Underneath that, the bigger problem, the reason we get so confused around verses like these, in our hyper-individual culture where morality and right and wrong is so relativized, we are confused about verses like this because we are confused about love. So confused. Confused about what it means to love people, what it looks like to love someone. In art, the air we breathe, the cultural creed that is regurgitated over and again, all around us, is that love has become synonymous with approval. And you only really love someone if you approve of every part of their life. In our part of the world, what it means, it means approving of everything desired by someone, everything pursued by someone, whether you agree with them or not. And so to oppose something in someone's life, to confront something wrong in someone's life, is a failure of love, according to the, the age we live in. That's our truth in our culture. Let me make a judgment about that. That's not true. That's not true. That, that can't be true. Nobody even holds that consistently even. We just hold it around the, uh, the issues of right and wrong that are popular now. Look, can you imagine? Like Love is not undifferentiated approval or unconditional support of everything about someone's life. Think about how disastrous it would be if people raised toddlers with that definition of love. Like if my three-year-old says, dad, I'm going to go play in the busy street. And I say, live your life. I love you. Right? The other day, my three-year-old was in trouble for, for disobeying. And, and I'm trying to talk with her and I say, Ayla, you need to obey mom and dad. And I'm giving her one of my dad's speeches. They're, they're super effective, trust me. And she looks at me and she goes, Dad, you're being inappropriate. <laughs> and I wasn't. I, I, in, in no way was I being inappropriate. And I did that thing where I tried really hard not to laugh because I couldn't afford to lose credibility with her or any more credibility with her, I guess. And then she looks at me and she goes, Dad, I'm the mom. And what I didn't say, I didn't look at her and say, you know, I support you in your decisions. I didn't say that. Because that's not what love would be. You, you can't love someone and approve of the things that are wrong for them. You can't love someone and approve of what's bad for them. That's not what love is. What that is, is that's some sort of form of passivity that is rooted in our own fears, in our own fear of man, in our own idolatry of people's approval and, and people-pleasing. How we have defined love around here, or at least the definition that I hope sticks around here that I've used before. Loving one another, it's rooted in God's covenantal love. And love says this, love is, um, I am with you and I am for you, even when it's hard, because I want my life to make your life look more like Jesus. That's how Christians love one another. I'm with you and for you, even when it's difficult. I want my life to make your life look more like Jesus. There is a moral vision I have for your life. That's true for me as a pastor. Anyone who calls this place home, there is a moral vision I have for your life. There, I want you to change. I want you to become more like Jesus. I hope you want me to change to become more like Jesus. And, and what it means is it's a moral vision that's not like a list of right and wrong, per se. It's a moral vision that is a person. a a wonderful person, the, the most true human that ever lived, Jesus, son of God who took on flesh, lived a perfect life. And what loving one another means is having a hope and having a vision in one another's life that I am going to be with you and be for you. And I'm hoping that my investment in your life, my presence in your life amounts to you looking more and more like Jesus. And what that kind of love requires is encouragement and presence and faithfulness, a ton of things. That kind of love also requires honesty and accountability and loving confrontation about sin in all of our lives. Look, Loving someone when they have sinned or chosen a life of sin is not about offering approval. It's not about trying to convince them that they aren't that bad. It's in their sin, pleading with them to repent and trying to convince them that grace is that good and Jesus is so much better. That's what loving someone looks like. So (laughs) this is not the point of the passage, Um, but it's a really good time to ask this question. Do you, friend, Christian, I'm talking to the Christians, do you, Have anyone in your life, someone you trust, someone you believe is for you and and with you, and this is something that you need to work out in your own heart and mind, but do you have anyone in your life that you have given permission to, you have asked, you have invited to exercise that kind of moral discernment in your life? Anyone that you said, look, I am counting on you to help me become more like Jesus, And what that means I'm asking you to do is I'm asking you to see what I can't see. I'm asking you to to tell me what I need to pay attention to. I'm asking you to call out sin where you see it. Here are my thoughts. Here's my life. Be honest with me. And what you're asking for in that moment is you're asking for someone to love you. You see, we need one another, not just for fellowship, not just because people need friends. We need one another because others can see in our lives what we can't see. Look, if we believe what the Bible teaches about our hearts, If we believe what the Bible actually says about the condition of the human heart, we should not be surprised to discover that we need more healing and more freedom and more obedience, and there's more sin than we thought. And our eyes on our life are often the most clouded and confused, so I need others. And hear me, please hear this. If that kind of honest, open, vulnerable community, if that's something that you retreat from, if that's something you avoid, if that's something that you run from, You are rehearsing and believing the lie that you are all you need, and you're not. Adam Hawkins is uh, one of our elders here at Citizens. He serves here as lead pastor. He and I together share the role of lead pastor, and um, it's an honor uh, to do this with him. He is one of my closest friends. He is one of my favorite people in the world, truly. A friend of ours once described him um, best by saying that he is at all times both the smartest and kindest person in the room. That's really rare for that to be true about the same person, that they're the smartest and the kindest. And that is true about him. A few months ago, I was sharing with him about how I was feeling. It was a a low day, a low week, a low season in a lot of ways for me. And so I was frustrated and I was disappointed and there were fears that I had and and lies that I was believing. And I just let it all out. I just told him about all of it. And he responded, he encouraged me, he said things that were really kind. And then he said, hey, uh, also, I, I just need you to, to know something. I said, okay. He said, I, I think you think you're more important than you actually are. And I said, well, <laughs> tell, tell me about that. And he said, look, Jamin, God, God can do this without you. He can do this without you. He loves you, but he doesn't need you. And some of what you're describing in some of your frustrations is you think you carry more than you actually do. And what he's confronting in my life is he's confronting pride in my life and self-sufficiency in my life and arrogance in my life. I think you think you're more important than you actually are, he said. And I looked at him and I said, don't judge me. (laughs) Just kidding. We actually haven't spoken since that moment. he was right, and I needed that. In fact, I've gone back to that conversation over and again since it happened as just a reminder, gosh, you're, you're more important so often than you think you are. Remember who's in control of these things. Remember your humble place before God who rules and reigns over all things. And it is a joy to be his servant, but you're just his servant, right? And I have asked for that kind of confrontation from him. And I, I, he could see it. I couldn't, I needed his voice. I needed him to love me enough to risk some awkwardness and some confrontation and speak truth and love. I need that. Friend, you need that. Do you have that? Have you asked anyone to, is there a community of people that you've asked to be that for you? If you haven't, if you have not recently, if you haven't recently had a conversation with someone you love and trust about sin in your life, if you do not regularly talk with someone that you love and trust about the struggles in your life, about doubt in your life, then you are right now at great risk of living in isolation and living in hiding. If, hear this, if also you've only surrounded yourself with people who never ask hard questions of you, if you've only surrounded yourself with people who never challenge you, it may be that you've pushed away all the people who actually love you. I know that's heavy, Don't worry, it gets much worse. Uh, What does it mean? If Jesus is not forbidding moral discernment, he's not forbidding Christian accountability, he's not forbidding the kind of honest conversations that say, I'm gonna see what's in your life and I'm gonna talk to you about what's in your life. What does it mean when he says, don't judge? Jesus has a brother named James who wrote a letter that is part of your Bible and he he expounds on this teaching in a way that I found really clarifying. James chapter four, verse 11, James says this, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Paul in Romans says it like this, very similar. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. God cares about how his people treat people. And when Jesus says, don't judge, he's reminding us that we're not God reminding us that he's called us to play a role in people's lives. He's not called us to play the role of God in anyone's life because we don't know what God knows. We don't see what God sees. It is good and right to be morally discerning, but we have entered into the realm of judging others when we're making personal condemnations about them, when we are looking at their life and feeling superior to them because of things that we either see in their life or assume in their life. This is the kind of judgment that only belongs to God. So what Jesus forbids, what James describes is when we assume the posture of God and not just being morally discerning, but we're assuming the posture of God and we are determining right and wrong. And we are determining who is condemned and who is not. Do not judge means do not try to play the role of God and condemn people. You know what that would look like? Jesus tells a story about a condemning person, about a judgmental person in Luke 18. Two men go into the temple. In verse nine, it says this. He told the parable to some of them who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee. The Pharisee is the condemning person and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed this. God, I thank you. This is the prayer of a condemning person. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust Adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That Pharisee and that prayer is the picture of a condemning person. What he does is he assumes the posture. He's in the very courtyard of the temple of God, and he assumes the posture of God and condemns the tax collector, makes a judgment about himself and a judgment about someone else. And what Jesus says at the end of that parable is he was wrong about both. There are two things that he does. There are two things that mark the life of this condemning Pharisee that we need to watch for in our life. I just want to ask you about these. If we're doing these two things, we will be critical in condemning of others. The first thing that he does is he narrows God's commands so that it only includes the things that he thinks he's doing a really good job keeping. He narrows God's commands to the ones that he feels like he has the most control over. I fast, thank you God that I fast and I give, and here's how much I fast and here's how much I give. And so he's narrowed God's commands just enough to make him feel superior than others. Look, fasting and giving, those are good things, but they're not the only good things. What about loving your neighbor? He doesn't recite Micah 6, 8, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly before God. He left that out. Had he been mindful of those things, he probably would have come under conviction and would have gone to the temple looking for mercy. Instead, he came ready to condemn. Is there any of that in your life? Is there any of that in your life? Have you narrowed the words of God to just the commands that you feel good about? Have you narrowed the words of God to just the things that you feel like you have the most control over? Do You know how you can tell if you've done that? You know how I can tell if I've done that? There will be an absence of confession in my life. You cannot consider the whole scope of what God has called us into. You cannot consider the whole scope of the life that God has called us to live and not see the ways that you fall short and not respond to that in confession. There is no way to to think even just about the life of Jesus and think about this sermon that Jesus is preaching and to hold our life up against it. There's no way to do that and not see, gosh, these are the areas I still need growth. And that'll lead us to confession. God, forgive me. God, help me. If that's absent, it means that we have narrowed, it means we either don't care at all about what God says, or we've narrowed what God says to only the things that we care most about, which means I'm trying to conform more and more into my image than conform more and more into Jesus's. Uh, I had a conversation with a retired pastor a few months ago. He's a really well-known pastor. He's a man in his 70s. He's incredibly godly. I got to go spend some time with him, me and, and two or three other pastors. And this man is, is uh, he, he's just faithful. He did it the right way. In a, in a world of very public moral failures among clergy, he's not one of them. He loved well, lived well in his retirement. He isn't retired. He's just pastoring in different ways. So I was at his house and I was with four other pastors. I was the youngest, which is usually true if I'm in a room of pastors and uh, one of them, thanked him for his ministry. We just kind of went around the room. Thank you, Ray, for all the things that you've done and all the, 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 the commentaries you've written and all these things. And um, after all of that, he looked at me. I don't know why me, but he looked at me and he said, do you know the difference between me and you? We just got done complimenting him, just got done honoring him. And he said, do you know the difference between me and you? And I said, I can think of a, I think, think of a lot. And he said, the difference is I have sinned a lot more than you have over 50 years of following Jesus, most of that serving the church, the example of faithfulness for pastors and the wisdom he has to share with this young preacher. the only difference is I've sinned more than you because I've had a lot more time to sin. I wonder, are you on that kind of journey with Jesus? Are you mindful of your relationship with God in that kind of way? Here's what he was not saying. He was not saying that sin has increased. What he's saying is, is, the, the closer I get to God, the more awareness I have of his holiness in my own heart. It's not necessarily that sin has increased as much as awareness of his heart and his awareness of his need for grace has increased. It's almost like the closer you get to the light, the more blemishes you can see. And that only comes. Are you, are you Do you think about your relationship with God like that? Not in a, a navel-gazing kind of way, not in a self-condemning kind of way. That's definitely not what Jesus wants, but in the way that you're so aware. Of your own heart, and so aware of the purity and grace and wholeness of Jesus that you could say, "The older I get, the more grace I need." That only comes by submitting our lives to the full scope of God's word. That only comes by comparing our life up against the perfect human Jesus, saying, "I will all look." You hear in the Pharisees' words, "Goodness," he assumed he was done. That's what he assumed. I have arrived. I've done it all, I've kept it all, there's no more change needed, there's no more confession needed, no more forgiveness needed, and he was wrong. Friend, brother, sister, we're not done, none of us. Look, we have not arrived, there is more change needed, there is more grace needed, there are more parts of our heart for the gospel to sink deeper into, to expose and to heal. And if we are not mindful of that, we will be very quick to feel superior to others and real quick to condemn. The other thing he does that condemning people do, he assumes about others what only God knows. The most offensive part of the condemning person is that they're so confident that they know what they can't see. There's this tax collector, and the Pharisee condemns him, and he was wrong about him. He only pays attention to him long enough to assume the worst about him and then feel better than him. Had he moved in closer, had he taken the time to care about him or get to know him, he would have heard this man's humble prayer. He would have heard what he was actually coming to the temple to do was to spend time with God and to seek forgiveness from God. Look, is there any of that in your life? Assuming about others, filling in what you don't know with your condemning conclusions. What's interesting about what the Pharisee does is he comes, Jesus says they're coming looking for justification. And so here's how he built his case for justification. Here are the narrow list of commands that I keep, and here are all the people that I'm better than. Do you have that kind of list in your heart Do you have that kind of list in your mind? If you do, usually we do what the Pharisee does and we just pick the people that are most unlike us socially, pick the people most unlike us culturally. We we conceive of, and this is especially true in this environment, in this incredibly toxic environment, we just find a label to place on people based on very little we know about their life and then fill in the rest in the most uncharitable ways and then feel like we've done something great feel like we're doing great. How you can tell and how this manifests in our life is we will spend most of our thought life comparing ourselves to others and very little of our thought life comparing ourselves to Jesus have very little time, look, you and I would have very little time to condemn and judge others when the person we're most mindful of is the perfect person, Jesus, if the person who most captures the attention of our thoughts. And then we get to be welcomed into this, you know, this sweet exchange of conviction that we're not yet like him, but then also encouragement that he's patient with us and faithful to us and has grace for us. We should think less of others and we should think more of Jesus. If we don't do that, we will do what this guy did and play the role of God. And Jesus says this, don't live this life. And he gives a very, very sober warning. For the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. What does that mean? It means this. You don't want to be the judge. You don't. Jesus is warning us, God as judge is merciful It says about him that his kindness leads to repentance. We're not good like he is. You don't want to live in a world where you're judged because then you will be held and I will be held to the same condemning critical standard that you apply to others. And none of us, goodness, if we're honest, none of us can even meet our own standard. If we kept record of all the condemning things that we've said or even the condemning things that we have thought, we would not pass our own test. No one would. Not only can we not meet God's standard, all of us are guilty of the very things that we've judged and condemned others for. You don't want God's job, not just because you don't have God's sight, but also because you don't have his heart. None of us do. We're not as kind as he is. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, full of loving kindness. Our God can hold perfect love and pure justice all in the same heart. Our God can sit in both the judgment seat and the mercy seat all at the same time. We want him to be the one passing judgments. We want him to be the one, knowing his sight is clear and pure, knowing that in his very heart is love. It's how he defined and describes himself. You and I don't want to try and do his job. He goes on. We've said what it doesn't mean, what it does mean. Jesus is gonna tell us how to respond. Verse three, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. There's something Jesus wants us to pay attention to. He wants us to pay attention to the fact that the people that we're most likely to condemn are those that are closest to us. So he uses this metaphor about logs and specks, and it makes sense because Jesus was a carpenter, and um, th- that has meaning, and it's, it's, it's incredibly important, but also see that he situates that in a familial context He talks about your brother. How can you see the log in your eye when there's a speck? It's in your brother's eye, those who are right by you. Who do you and I need to be especially cautious to not condemn, to not judge those closest to us? The people you see every day. Think about that. Just call to mind those people with me, the people that are in your home, the people you see every day. And those are the people whose weaknesses and sins and faults that you're most aware of. Those are the people whose sins you're most affected by. And because of that, there is a propensity to be most condemning towards those who are closest to you. He doesn't say there's a log in your eye and and everyone else's eyes are clear. He says, no, Jesus knows us. He knows when it comes to the sins of those closest to us, we often have the best seat in the house. No one knows my hurt and my coping mechanisms and my insecurity and my pride and my selfishness and my tendency to check out. No one knows that like my wife, Carrie. And no one knows her sin like I do. We are most likely to know best those whose sin is most exposed to us. And because of that, we're most likely to condemn those who are closest to us. John Wesley says this, that the, he was a preacher, the judging that Jesus condemns is thinking about another person in a way that is contrary to love. The judging that Jesus condemns is, is in your thought life, thinking about those closest to you in a way that's contrary to love what a great question to regularly ask of your thoughts and regularly ask of your life. Am I thinking about those closest to me in a way that's contrary to love? So these people around you, you see their faults and weaknesses and their sins. You know their failures. If you're thinking in a way contrary to love, you will begin doing something. You'll begin building your case against them. You will become an expert of their failures. You will, you will expect their faults. You'll be ready with accusation when they do. Maybe it never comes out as outright condemnation, but it's a critical word spoken over and over again. It's just the quiet, critical chipping that happens in relationships as they're souring. It's when I make value statements or identity statements about people that contradict what God has said about them. And if we're not careful, because we see their sin, because we are so acquainted with them and their exposed self, if we're not careful, we become judge over their life. We become a condemning, accusatory presence over their life. And the saddest part of that is it's the opposite of the reason God placed you that close to them to begin with. God puts us in proximity to one another to play a very specific role. Jesus tells us, after you get the log out of your own eye, which we'll talk about, he says, help them remove the dust. Help them remove the speck. I don't know how exactly that works, but it it seems like that needs to be a really gentle thing, right? You don't do that with a wrench or something like that, right? You you're gentle and you're careful. And it seems like Jesus is putting that in a context of gentleness and care, saying, be kind to one another, be gracious to one another. And that won't happen if your thoughts towards those closest to you are condemning. Hear me, friend, those closest to you, they already have an accuser. You know that? His days are numbered, his future is over, and you don't want any part of his schemes. You don't. God has not placed you close to who he's placed you close to, to be a condemning presence, but to be a life-giving presence with your words to encourage where there needs to be confrontation, it be humble and gracious. How do you have that kind of heart? How do you live in the world in that kind of way? Jesus tells us, by starting with you, by your beginning place with sin being your own receiving mercy for your own sin. Jesus says remove the log in your own eye. It means you're aware of your sin. Some commentators say that he uses log to say that the sin is greater than the sin around you. Others say it's he uses the log image to say that to those who are truly walking in humility, their sin is more important to them than anyone else's. In other words, the the sin that is the biggest deal in their life is their own, that that I am so much more aware of my own heart than I am of anyone else's. I don't have time to project and assume and judge because I have enough sin to deal with just in my own heart. And Jesus says, remove the log, be aware of the log, pray the tax collector's prayer. There are two prayers prayed in in the story Jesus tells. There's the condemning prayer, and then there's the prayer of the justified man the justified prayer, and it just goes like this. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That prayer has been popularized and changed a bit throughout the years, and some just call it simply the Jesus prayer, that some pray every day, many traditions every day, just pray, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, or Jesus, our Savior, have mercy on me, a sinner. And here's the good news the mercy you're asking for, when you're aware of your own sin, when you know the faults of your, the mercy you're asking for, it's always there. It's always there. There is such implicit grace in this passage. Jesus doesn't say you have a log in your eye and you're doomed. He says, there's a log in your eye, remove it. I've paid for it. There's grace and forgiveness for it. So the moment you pray, God, have mercy on Jesus, son of God, have mercy on me, Jesus, our savior, have mercy on me, a sinner. What you're asking for is you're asking for what God has in abundance, mercy and grace and forgiveness. He's eager to lavish on all those who there is more grace for you than there is sin inside of you. Could you believe that? There is more grace for you from God than there is even propensity inside of you to sin. God cares about how his people treat people. He does not want us to be condemning and judgmental people, but remember how that God treats you. Remember that his heart is soft towards you. Remember that he sent his son who spilled his blood for you and that we don't have to be scared of, we don't have to shrink back from awareness of sin in our own heart, but we can come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy and help. Could we pray towards that end this morning? Would you bow your head with me? Would you close your eyes and just spend some time responding? Remember church, our great hope in gathering together is not to be a people who sit and listen, but be a people who receive and respond. Let's respond to God together this morning. Maybe God would bring a person to mind that you just regularly have condemning and accusatory thoughts towards. Would you ask for forgiveness? Would you ask for his mercy and help to replace those condemning accusatory thoughts? and make you a life-giving presence in their life. Maybe you think about those closest to you. Maybe you think about those in your home. Maybe you think about your spouse, your kids, your roommates, your coworkers, and just be reminded in this moment, God, you did not place me that close to police their life, to assume what I don't know, or even to use their faults against them. You place me that close to be a life-giving presence. Forgive me, God, for being condemning and judgmental. Maybe you'd pray and you'd say, God, I need a friend who I'm going to invite to be morally discerning about my life. I need a friend, I need a community that I'm going to invite to speak honestly into my life. Would you bring that friend, God? Would you give me the courage to initiate those kinds of relationships? Or maybe what God has done is God has brought your sin, your struggle, your faults and failures, maybe he's brought those front of mind to you and it's, it's as if there's something just sticking out of your face. Would you believe that there is more grace for you than there is sin inside of you? Pray, ask God, Jesus, Savior, have a mercy on me, a sinner. Believe the forgiveness you're asking for is yours in Christ. Lord God, I am in constant need of your mercy and your presence. You know that. You know that better than I do. We, together, as your people, we have not outgrown, we have not obeyed our way to a place of no longer needing the gospel and no longer needing your grace and mercy. So would you remind us afresh of the love that you have for us? We love you, we thank you. Would you make Citizens Church, Lord God, continue making us a people who walk humbly, who extend mercy, who are courageous enough to stand on your word, to speak to the world what is good and right, but then also God, humble enough by our own acknowledgement of our own need to be kind and inviting and full of love and mercy. We thank you, Jesus. Amen.